being true to God till death is faithfulness. And that's our theme this morning, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. We've been doing a series on the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Faithfulness is what I want us to look at this morning. The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. It's clinging to what is right with steadfastness, with endurance, with firmness unto death, unto uh, the end. It reminded me of a cute little story, I guess. Guy went downtown and um, uh, had an important meeting, so he wanted to park right on the street, right in front of his, his meeting place, and uh, couldn't find an empty parking spot, so circled the, you know, the, the block a few times and finally couldn't find it. So he just pulled into one of those um, no-parking uh, little areas there and wrote a little note and put it on the windshield. It says, I've circled the, the block for 15 minutes, and if I don't park here, uh, I'm going to miss an important meeting. And he signed it, said, sincerely, forgive us our trespasses. Went in, comes back out got a parking ticket and there was a note attached to the parking ticket and the note attached to the parking ticket says I have been circling this block for 15 years giving out parking tickets if I don't give you one I might lose my job sincerely lead us not into temptation <clears throat> it is reminding me how how we we try to rationalize our disobedience, our lack of faithfulness. So many ways we can come up with saying, I don't have to faithfully do what I know I should do. Um, And we even use scripture sometimes to rationalize that. Faithfulness is not rationalizing. It's, It's doing what God says, clinging to his truth steadfastly, with endurance, firmly, to the end. Um, it's a fruit of the Spirit. You know, of, of all the fruits, I wonder if we can just readily get. Infidelity seems to be the norm in our society, right? So, faithfulness is not a cultural commodity. It is a spiritual fruit. Faithfulness is not a cultural commodity. We don't see it just oozing out of culture. But we should be seeing it coming out of the church, out of the people of God, because the Spirit is within us. And because the Spirit is within us, He is developing us, conforming us to the image of Christ. He is producing this thing called faithfulness we're not none of us are there where we want to be how how can we get there and be cultivating this fruit with the spirit more and more so that's my focus this morning is first on how to to learn more and from scripture what this faithfulness entails what we need to do and then two quick principles after that just how to um, live faithful lives Uh, first of all thinking about learning to be faithful, we have to learn three things, I think. We have to learn to trust truth, to trade talents, 
and to tolerate tribulation or we're not going to be faithful. First of all, let's look at trusting truth. Look with me at Romans chapter 3, 1 through 4. Romans 3, first four verses. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. So he, he was beginning this chapter saying, you know, the gospel, God, the law of God, the standard, whatever you want to say, it came to the Jew first. The Jew was God's special nation and people. We read that through the Old Testament. Is, is that of any advantage that they as a people group, that they got it first? And Paul says, yes, it's of great advantage. First of all, he says, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then if some did not believe? Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when, all, uh, when you are judged. Now, what I want us to get out of that is not so much the, the difference between Jews and Gentiles, but he, he's saying, you know, obviously the Jews didn't believe everything God said. So was it an advantage for them to get what God said? And, and Paul says, yes. But somebody's obviously throwing, yeah, but they didn't believe it. Paul says, well, that doesn't change the truth of it. God was still faithful to them as God. He was faithful. His word was faithful. It didn't matter whether or not they believed it. His faithfulness to them was a huge advantage to them. His word to them was a huge advantage to them because it remains to this day the truth. Even if they didn't believe, even if their hearts were hard, even if they did reject, they still had a faithful God coming to them, speaking the truth first. And that's tremendous. How do we grow in faithfulness? We must trust truth. God comes to us. He speaks the truth. We can't be like the Jew that says, well, I don't believe it. I don't trust it. I'm not sure it's going to be good for me. And we must trust it. We must stay with it. We don't, um, we don't de- by denying it, we, we don't discount it. We don't, we're not able to get away from it. God's truth stands. Um, it's, it's like the child who's, who's told by the parent, um, go to your room, clean up your room, and next time you see Joey, be nice to Joey. The child says, why? Well, it's going to be good for you. And because I said so. You know, sometimes that's all a parent can say. Because I say so. Just trust me. You might not get it yet, but just trust me on this. Now, a child who is faithful doesn't just say, well, I hear your words, but I'm I'm not going to do that. And they go and do their own thing. No, a child who is faithful not only hears the word, but responds to it, even if we don't get it. So the child goes to the room, cleans up the room. Next time they see Joey, they're nice to him. Well, it may be years down the road 
before the child realized, you know, doing my homework and cleaning up my room, that really turned out pretty good. You know, I've really been able to advance. And being nice to Joey, who would have known he's the CEO of my company? You know? That it really turned out pretty good. Faithfulness to the truth, the parents were saying, responding to it, actually turns out pretty good. And God wants us to trust truth, to be faithful to it. You know, there are a lot of people, God says something, and they just pull away. They're not faithful to it. God says He has created us in His image. Other people say, no, 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 no. You don't don't need to believe that. Uh, You were the product of some unintelligent, random, cosmic acts. Really? Uh, you know, which do you believe? Which you favor? You know, I think about a child. A child doesn't typically have a hard time believing if, if the child has two parents, male and female. Sorry, I have to say that today. But if a child has two parents, male and female, it's not a big stretch for the child to say, yeah, this is mom and dad. I got uh, dad's eyes. I got mom's hair. I I can see this. It's, this, is, this is not hard to figure out. And then somebody comes along and says, no, those aren't your parents. You're the result of a cosmic, unintelligent, random act. Really? I thought I came from mom and dad. You know, no, you really came from this, some unintelligent creature that was randomly mutating or whatever, and now this is who you are. We believe we've got parents. We believe we've got an intelligent God. It's, there's those who trust the truth, and there's those who turn away from the truth and try to create something else. Faithfulness comes from trusting a standard of truth, and, and you, you stick with it. You endure with it. You're firm with it to the end. We're not going to be faithful people until we, we see that there's truth to trust that it's not all relevant, that it's not all up for grabs. There must be a body of truth that we cling to. So, uh, and that body of truth enables us to be faithful. When you see a husband or a wife who's faithful to their vow, marriage vows, why? Well, they, they believe there's, there's truth in those vows, that a husband should love his wife. A wife should be submissive to her husband in sickness and health and sorrow and joy as long as they both shall. There's truth there and we embrace it and as a result there's faithfulness for those who trust the truth and stay with it. Same with church vows. Same same with vows in your workplace that that you promise uh, your employer. There's faithfulness when we, we embrace the truth before us, and then stick to it. Um, If we don't cling to God's Word as that body of truth, to God as the author of that truth, uh, we're not going to be demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. Second, not only must we be trusting truth, we must be trading talents. Now, this is crucial. So many people miss that God being our creator and giver of all that we have, miss this. Look at Matthew 25. Here's the parable of the talents. 
That's where I'm getting this language. Beginning at verse 14. And I want us to think about how we trade our talents. Verse 14 says, For it is just like, Matthew 25, 14, It's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. Now don't miss that part because that's extremely important for everything else. The, this person is, is, the analogy is that this is God, and God has entrusted what? Everything that we have. Our possessions were God's possessions. He's entrusted those possessions to us. Verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. So we're not all equal. We don't have equal ability. We have different ability. God gives us according to that ability. Verse 16, Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. So there's the trade. Saw opportunity, traded five, ended up with ten. Um, In the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more. But he who had received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. And his master said to him, here's here's the faithfulness part, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away, and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reaped where I did not sow, gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, Take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So literally, hell. Trading talents is important. The guy who didn't trade his talents, do anything with it, ends up in the pits of hell. Do we understand that God has given us things? This is his world. He gave us what we have. What we do with it matters to him. As he comes and settles the camp, he says, I'm, I'm seeing basically who's faithful. The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. Those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God are returning to God, not only what He's given us, but more. 
We're investing all He's given us. Our abilities and our talents are being used to, to increase the kingdom of God, to build it up for the king, for the master. You know, investing in God's people, in God's church, matters to Him. We're, are we using the talents God has given them, given us um, the way He wants us to use them? Uh, it's, it all comes back to, were they doing it for the owner, for the master, for the king, for the Lord? Do we, do we use what we have for Jesus? Let me give you some examples to compare it with, um, with those who don't do it right. Look at uh, Absalom, uh, 2 Samuel 15, 1 through 6. 2 Samuel 15. Samuel was very bright, very intelligent. He possessed a lot of things. He was very handsome, um, very attractive to folks. He was the king's son. King David's, one of King David's uh, most precious sons of, of the many he had. He loved Absalom. Absalom had a lot of talent, a lot of gifts, a lot of possessions. He comes to town here, 2 Samuel 15, says, Now it came about after this that Absalom, you want to circle this, provided for himself. Notice the focus of Absalom. It's all about Absalom. He's providing for himself instead of using what he's got for the king or for his lord, seeing himself as a steward there. He says he provided for himself, and he could. He was king's son. He provided for himself a chariot, horses, 50 men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to, to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but nobody listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, that every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And so when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And this is the manner Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. What's Absalom doing here? He's using all of his talents that God has graciously given to him for himself. He's not using his talents for God or God's kingdom. He's, he's, using, he, he's, he's working a plan to be a traitor to his own dad. To his own king who has the heart after God. Even to God himself. Um, so you could have a lot of talent. A lot of ability that you've been given by God. But not be using it for God. And yet the people think you are. He stole people's hearts. He, he manipulated people to say... I'm the one who listens to you. I'm the one who loves you. I'm the one who really cares about you. Boy, if you had a king like me, you would be the best people in the world. That's Absalom. But I don't think his life was going to be very sweet when God comes to settle accounts. Because his talents weren't used 
for God. And we can read on in the rest of the story and see that it became known that he was committing acts of treason, that he was a traitor. He eventually is destroyed. But more important, he slipped into the pits of hell because his talents were not used for God and his kingdom. Give you another example. Look at a righteous Pharisee, uh, Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 5. It says, Matthew 6, 1 through 5, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Sounds a little bit like Absalom. He wanted to be noticed. He was doing it for himself. He says, be careful practicing righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward for your father, um, with your father who is in heaven. I had a, a lady come up to me once and, and asked me, said, you know, I don't think God wants us living for rewards. I don't think God gives rewards. Uh, what do you say? And uh, the first thought that came to me was Hebrews eleven six. It says, he who comes to God must believe that he is and believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I thought, no, God is all about some rewards. The more I got to thinking about that, I, I kind of understand why you're thinking no rewards because you're technically a righteous Pharisee. You're not going to get any rewards. But there are rewards to get. And... Uh, God says here clearly to this righteous Pharisee, says, if you do it this way, no reward. Verse 2, so when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. They want to be noticed. And in the street, so that you may be honored by the men, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. You get rewards, but yours, yours are done on this earth if you do it that way. Verse 3, but when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. God does reward. Clear there. He said, but I want you to do life right. I want you to trade your talents in such a way that for the pleasure of God, not for yourself. Verse 5, and when you pray, you're not to be like hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they've got their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Um, God is clearly rewarding us. God is clearly looking at us. God is clearly seeing whether or not we're trading our talents for the kingdom of God or whether we're living for ourselves. He has given us what we have. How do we use it? How do we trade it? Are we using it for God or is it all about us? And do we want people to see us or do we want to so trade our talents that they see our good works and glorify God in heaven? See, as we look both at Absalom and the righteous Pharisee, they weren't about glorifying God in heaven. It was all about people seeing them. Trading our talents is crucial for faithfulness unto the end till we get to the point of seeing God face to face. That's, that's where the faithfulness is accounted for that point. Uh, are we faithful? How are we doing? 
in the way we pray. Take this Pharisee, for example. How are we doing in the way we give? How are we doing in the way we love or honor our dad, like in Absalom's case? You see, this is... I don't have to stretch for, for examples or illustrations. God is looking at people who are honoring their parents or not. He's looking at people who are praying or not. He's looking at people who are giving or not. And he's saying, well, yeah, they, they do have a parent. Yeah, they do give. Yeah, they do pray. But, but they don't do it for the master. They're not investing for the king. It's, they're just living for themselves. How are we doing it the way we love our spouse? How are we doing it the way we train our children? How are we doing it the way we work in our workplace? All of these things come back to God, saying God is wanting us to do all of these things for Him. Faithfulness involves trusting His truth. It involves trading our talents uh, to extend God's kingdom and His ministry here on earth. And then the third thing, I think we need to realize is an ingredient of faithfulness is learning to tolerate tribulation. Tolerate tribulation. Hard times come. Look at uh, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2. Here we're dealing with God's message to the church at Smyrna. He makes this statement in verse 10. Revelation 2, verse 10. He says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. He's going to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. God defines faithfulness as something that extends to the point of death. Not until we get sick, not until we have a hard time, not until we're thrown into prison, unto death. Since you're going to suffer, you're going to have some hard times. Some of you are going to have some really hard times. Some of you are going to be locked away in hard times. Some of you will be martyrs. It's going to get tough. Faithfulness extends to death. Um, are, are we willing to be faithful or, or that long? Or do we say, well, I, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. This, I'm, I'm done here. Well, so as soon as we say that, I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to cease being faithful. This is too much. You know, we, we just prove the Spirit is not in us. Prove the Spirit is, is, a, is a faithfulness unto the end. Um, what are some examples of that? One I immediately thought about was I, I, the only car I bought new. Well, I did buy another one. I sold it quickly because it was a mistake. Um, I couldn't afford it. I bought too much. But the one I did buy new that, that I drove, I could afford and because somebody helped me. Uh, and I drove it, it was a car I drove 240,000 miles. And I thought, this is the way cars are supposed to be. They're supposed to be faithful. They're supposed to endure. Yeah, you know, I wrecked it a few times. It still goes. You know, you just patch it up. It still goes. And it was still going at 240,000 miles. Uh, and I thought, yeah. Through trials and tribulations, it works. Our lives are supposed to work like that. Through whatever the, the wrecks we get involved in, we're supposed to, we're supposed to keep going faithfully. When, uh, before my grandfather passed away, um, we, especially around the time of his 70th wedding anniversary, 
I had some, some great conversations with him that I cherish to this day. And in one of those conversations, um, you know, we were talking about his, his wedding, his, his marriage, his life. And he turned to me and said, David, he says, uh, I have had uh, one spouse, I've had one house, and one church for 70 years. And I said, wow. Who do you know like that? One spouse, one church, one house for 70 years. I said, I want to be a papa like that. That's faithfulness. That's in, and he, he had three heart attacks. He was a fireman. He went into dangerous places. He, he was in the war, World War II. He was in Okinawa. He, he had lots of hard times. But one spouse, one house, and one church. Really 71 and a half years before he passed away. But I want to I be like that. That's faithfulness unto the end. It's tolerating the tribulations because the tribulations will come. You will have a lot of hard, difficult days, weeks, months, life. Um, faithfulness is enduring to the end. Uh, when you're chastened in your marriage, you stick it out. When you're chastened by your parents, you stick it out. When you're chastened by your children... They're on your last nerve. You stick it out. When you're chasing in your employment with your possessions, it's faithfulness. It's, it's enduring the long haul. That should be coming out of the church. The world should be looking and says, y'all are so dependable. You're so enduring. You're, you're the kind of people we want to be around because you're faithful. I can count on it. Um, that's the kind of people God builds in his church. Well, how do we do that? How do we live faithfully? Two principles. We have to understand scriptural management, and we have to understand stewardship matters. To be faithful, we must know scriptural management, and we must know stewardship matters. First of all, scriptural management. Look at Psalm 119. It's in the middle of your Bible. The longest chapter, Psalm 119, verse 30. Stay there a minute. I want to show you three verses, not just one. Psalm 119, verse 30. And the psalmist says, I have chosen the faithful way. So this is, this is key. What is it? How, you found it? I want to know it. I have chosen the faithful way. This is it. I have placed your ordinances before me. That's it. Scriptural management. I figured out how to live a faithful life. It's scriptural management. I have placed your ordinances before me. Some of your translations uh, might read, uh, I have accounted your ordinances worthy. God's ordinances are His law. It's His commandments. He says, I, I figured out the faithful life. 
I don't do anything unless it comes through the law of God, unless it comes through what I've determined to be worthy direction for what I'm to do. I put the law of God, the word of God, the commands of God as a grid that everything must filter through. It's before me. It's it's my game plan. It's my guide. It's my direction. The faithful life is lived when everything is managed or judged based on the standard of God's law. Is it worthy for me to do this or that? I've determined this is worthy. This is the standard. So since I've determined this is worthy, everything else must be managed, must come under the searchlight of Scripture to, 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 to guide me and to direct me. Now notice, go back two verses and see how the psalmist gets here. Psalm 119, verse 28. My soul weeps because of grief. Grief. Strengthen me according to your word. So I'm down, I'm in the dumps, life is miserable. Lord, I need your word. Strengthen me. Number, verse 29. Remove the faults way from me and graciously grant me your law. Notice how he's gotten here. He says, I get really weighed down sometimes. Life is tough. But if I'm going to get back up, I, I need the Scripture. I need the law of God to, to shine on to what's going on in my life because I know there's some false ways. I know I could get off this track this way or this way. I, wa- I want to stay on the tracks, God. So, so let your, your Scripture guide me so, so that this train can stay on track because if I stay on track, I can run and I can get stuff done. But if I get off... I won't be faithful. I have found the faithful way is letting the law of God be the rails I run on. Letting the law of God always show me what's false, what's not worthy, what's not going to last, what's not going to be good for me. Do we do that? Do we let the Word of God tell us what we should do? Or do we depend upon research and and science and, and people and uh, groups and schemes, we've, we've, we've got to get to a place where we're managed by the Word of God. Scriptural management of our lives keeps us faithful. How does the Word of God teach us how, um, uh, in, in, uh, I'm teaching in, in the best discipleship class this morning, it's the senior high class, just, just so you know, it's, it's worthy, it's worthy of that title. Yeah, you were trying to be nice. Thank you. I appreciate that. I get the last word. Yes. Um, We're teaching this morning on what does God's word say? How does it guide us in our gender selection and in what we dress, how we dress? The word of God gives us direction to what we put on. What does it say? The word of God gives us direction to who we marry. The Word of God gives us direction to how genders are supposed to function. The Word of God gives us direction to what we eat. The Word of God gives us direction on how we work. The Word of God gives us direction on what we think about and how we think and the methods we choose. The Word of God gives us direction for how we train our children. 
The Word of God gives us directions for how we worship. I mean, it just, it's about everything. No matter what it is you do, the Word of God, the law of God must be before you as that standard, and life must be managed according to it. You can't be faithful without a, a, a truthful standard that is your judge for every possible thing you think about or do. Which is why you don't find faithfulness as a cultural commodity. They don't have an eternal, absolute standard of truth. Only the people of God have that. And the people of God have the Spirit within us to show us that standard, to show us that truth, to keep it before us so that our life is managed accordingly. So obviously you have to be reading the Bible, you have to be studying the Bible, you have to have, know the Bible. It's got to be before you every day in some way. If you've already got it memorized, you can have it before you just through meditation. But you must have God's truth or life cannot be lived uh, faithfully. It requires scriptural management. Second, it requires understanding stewardship matters. Remember that parable of the talent? Stewardship matters. Matthew 25, I said, call particular attention to verse 14, that he gives us our possessions. And I also said, make sure you realize he's coming to settle accounts. Why? Because it's his stuff. You and I are his stuff. He's created us. He fashioned us in our mother's womb. We were all the product of a creator. And that creator is going to come to us at some point and say, okay, what did you do with the talents I gave you? And you're going to say, if you haven't thought about this by then, uh-oh, stewardship matters. Stewardship of what he gave me matters because now he comes to ask me what I've done with my life why am I here and what have I been doing uh, he comes to settle accounts for us to be faithful you must get this you know why do your parents if you've had some some good parents or good good brothers or sisters or people bringing you up why did they say to you close the door pick up your stuff you know, close the windows. Don't drive so fast. Where do these commands go? They come from the concept stewardship matters. You know, you're letting the air condition out. It costs. It matters. You're, you're, you're cluttering up. It matters how, how things are managed. You're going so fast. You're spending more fuel. You're being dangerous. Our lives matter. There, there's so many ways we see stewardship matters. Do we see it from the standpoint of the creator? He says, I've given you all you have. And I want to know how you use all you have. Every breath you breathe. We, we, we must see ourselves as stewards of the possessions of God granted to us for a time. None of us know how much time we have, but that even the time itself is a possession given to us by our Creator. And we will not live life faithfully until we see that stewardship to God matters. How we respond to all 
he's given. I want to close with a couple of verses. One is Hebrews 10, 36 through 39. Hebrews 10, 36 through 39. That's the best discipleship class going on right now, the one in Hebrews, right? Right, okay. So be, I'll be nice back. Hebrews 10, 36 through 39. It says, For you have need of endurance. We do, don't we? We have need to endure faithfully. You have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, which is why we should do, our, do what we do for God's will, for His pleasure, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteousness my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction. We are those who are faithful. We are those who endure. We, we do life for the will of God. I had somebody come to me once, so I actually I went to him, and I was talking to him about why he wasn't in church or why he didn't seem to care about the body of Christ. And he says, I guess you just have to call me a carnal Christian. And I thought about that for a while. I said, mm, the words you used once in 1 Corinthians 3, that's where he's getting it from, perhaps. And I, I, The word carnal. And I got thinking, I said, you know, there is no such thing as a carnal Christian that's going to heaven, if that's what, if you mean carnal Christian, I can, I, can, I, can, I can accept the terminology. I don't like the terminology, but I can accept it. But I want you to know there's no such thing as a carnal Christian that goes to heaven. Because the fact that you have defined yourself as carnal, as, as immoral, as doing wrong stuff perpetually, then you are defining yourself, according to Hebrews 10, as, as one of those who shrinks back. You were calling yourself a Christian who's now carnal in a perpetual way. You're shrinking back to destruction. You're not going to heaven because you're not faithful. You're not enduring, enduring life in such a way as to, to live the will of God. So, and we live in a culture that likes to use the term Christian. No, I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. I'm a Christian. I had people in this town say, well, yeah, don't, don't be down on my homosexual lifestyle. I'm a homosexual Christian. And, and so trying to deal with that language, I'm saying, okay. But homosexual Christians shrink back to destruction. You're not keeping the will of God. Immoral Christians shrink back to destruction. God says, we are not of those who shrink back. Genuine Christians don't shrink back to destruction. We go to an accounting with God, and God receives us in, and we want to hear, well done, good, and what? Faithful servant. There's a faithfulness in us that is spirit-produced. And that's who we are. When that faithfulness is lost to the will of God. I, what I want you to hear is, I'm not asking you to go out of here and he says, well, I'm not faithful. I need to try harder. I am not asking you to try harder. 
if you are not seeing the Spirit produce faithfulness in you, your need is not to try harder. Your need is Jesus. Your need is to be regenerated. You're sliding into destruction. You're, you're in the grip of Satan. You need redemption out of that pit. You need the Spirit of God in you that enables you. You don't have ability without the Spirit to be faithful unto the end. So your need is to cry out to God, save me. I've been living the entire life for me. Instead of under scriptural management for you. That's the need. So you don't get faithfulness as I just need to try hard and be a little bit better. Faithfulness is, is, is staying under scriptural management our entire life after Christ. If Christ has truly come in to our lives, then, then he's our master. And we look forward to that accounting with him. Because he's, he's giving us faithfulness to endure till that point. Doesn't mean we don't have times of doubt. Doesn't mean we don't have slip-ups. And I'll close with that verse. That I was going to share too. So look at Matthew 14, verse 28 and 30 through 31. Here's the story of Peter walking on the water. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is your command, if it, if it is you, they didn't not quite know who was walking on the water, who else would it be? He says, If it's you, command me to come to you on the water. So Jesus said, Come. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Some of us may be of little faith this morning, but the faith is present. Some of you may feel like you're sinking, But that's one of the reasons we come before scriptural management on Sunday on a weekly basis. That's one of the reasons we come to the Lord's table. We need God to again reach out and grab us and say, let me strengthen you. Let me nourish you. Let me remind you once again why I bought and paid for you. You're mine. And I want you to live for me. And I want all of your life to be mine lived under my management. So the Lord's table is here to, to remind us Christ died for us, shed his blood for us, he nourishes us just as bread and wine do, he strengthens us because we do have times of doubt and struggle. But he is in us to, to give us and to live through us a faithful, enduring life. If that's your need, come to Christ If you've come to Christ like me, you need to be strengthened and nourished and reminded of Him and His Word day after day, week after week. Uh, What a joy it is that God's constantly giving to us so that we can be directed by Him. Let's pray together. Father, look at us, each one here in this room where we are. May Your Spirit convict us. May we feel the guilt of our sin so that we turn from it to our need. Lord, for those who need you to save them from a whole life managed by themselves selfishly, 
Lord, come and save the sinner. For those of us who've been saved already by your grace, Lord, we come needing new strength, new grace, fresh reminders of your truth to guide and direct. We need to be nourished so that we don't sink. We need to walk where you walk and live as you want us to live. Nourish us now. Remind us that we can turn from our sins and embrace the righteous path afresh. Father, we endeavor to a life of new obedience from this moment on. We thank you for coming to us. We thank you that you never slumber, you never sleep, you never give up. You're here. We praise and adore you. We seek your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.